May we pray that people would see Jesus, the light of Christmas. Because the truth is that during the holiday season, many people feel like they're walking through darkness. Maybe it seems like you're sailing on a stormy sea at night and there's no light to guide you. Maybe you've walked in here this morning and you feel that way. But even when you're walking through darkness, you have to know which light to follow because we live in a world that claims there's many truths. In fact, it reminds me of a story I heard about a lighthouse that did more harm than good. For more than 40 years, a lighthouse was positioned on a large peninsula just jutting out into the Tasman Sea in southern Australia. It stood at that place, even though it shouldn't have, and it lured ignorant ships into the very rocks they were trying to avoid. The cliffs around Cape St. George, where this lighthouse was, just south of Jervis Bay, were notorious for shipwrecks. It was decided that a lighthouse was needed for safe navigation along this coastal shipping route. In fact, in 1827, Colonel Alexander Dawson began looking for a site suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. Unfortunately, Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction than he was in navigational aids. This site wasn't even visible from the required approaches. A bad lighthouse it was. Dawson chose the site solely because it was closer to the quarry from which he planned to obtain stones to build the lighthouse. Now, despite these glaring deficiencies, the chairman of the pilot's board oddly authorized the construction of the lighthouse, and for the next four decades, the ill-sighted lighthouse was the cause for nearly two dozen shipwrecks. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the Point Perpendicular Lighthouse in a much more suitable location. But even after its decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause navigational problems, especially on moonlit nights when the Golden Sandstone Tower glowed in the dark. Now, near the end of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. But do you see what happened? The lighthouse was meant to give direction, to give hope to ships who were lost in the ocean's darkness. Instead, this lighthouse produced destruction. And I think many times the same can be true in our lives. Perhaps you've entered this room this morning in a fog. It seems as though you've been walking through darkness and you're longing for a light to guide you. Maybe a loved one has passed away recently. Perhaps you're experiencing financial challenges or a poor health diagnosis or relational strife. And Christmas this year just doesn't feel so holly jolly as you would like it to be. It's in these moments that we can have the temptation to take our cues from the wrong lighthouse. You see, friends, if we are to get help, if we need true help, we need to pursue a lighthouse that is built in the right place and whose desire is for our good not something that masquerades as light. So often we hear advertisements to buy books that guarantee your best life now or nine steps to becoming more happy. All kinds of people will offer advice about how we should live our lives, telling us their version of the good life. If we could pause for a second this morning, though, I wonder if we might ask ourselves whose voice is influencing our life. Where am I getting the underlying assumptions that influence my worldview? It could be cultural critics or cable news talking heads. It could be music artists, movie moguls, or sports icons. 
Maybe we listen to business gurus or politicians. These people seem to have prophetic voices in our time, but if their advice is built on faulty, faulty assumptions, like the lighthouse we just heard about, it will lead to ruin, not rescue. Has this ever happened to you? It can be tempting when things are not good to run to something we think will make us happy. We are too eager to buy the sales pitch. In fact, retail stores count on it. Take Black Friday for an example. Have you ever purchased something on Black Friday you didn't expect to because you thought it would make you happy and you were told you were getting a great deal? It happens every year. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to get a a good deal on Black Friday or that people can't offer you good advice. Uh, I am, though, getting at the deeper heart-level issues that we all wrestle with. In a world that constantly tells us to follow our hearts and make us happy, it is much easier to get off course and follow the wrong lighthouse. And so at Christmas time, we're sold a version of the good life, when in fact we need someone to speak prophetically into our lives. We need somebody who will lovingly and carefully guide us into the truth we need to hear when times are difficult or when we're questioning our faith. We need to hear from a prophet who can guide us into all truth. Now this morning, we are continuing our series entitled Messiah. Uh, Last week, Dr. Mish Glazer gave us an overview of prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. But for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus' three offices as prophet, priest, and king. Today, we'll focus on his role as prophet. A prophet, biblically speaking, is someone who has the very word of God on their lips and who reveals truth from God. And while Jesus is the final penultimate prophet who perfectly reveals the truth about God, he does that because he was God. As Alistair Begg puts it, we need Jesus because we cannot know God apart from him. And so in our brief time today, I want to share with you three keys to understanding Jesus as prophet. First, we have to understand the history of the prophet. Second, the supremacy of Christ. And third, the transformation of our souls. The first two are mostly theological. The last one is applicational. As we understand Jesus' prophetic role in our life, we will see that he is indeed the light of the world who shines brighter than all the false lighthouses out there. And so with that in mind, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your sending your son, the final prophet who speaks your truth into our lives. And Lord, I don't know how my friends have walked in here today. Father, maybe some are are walking through darkness. Maybe some feel like their life is is just a fog right now, Lord. I, I pray that you, Lord, would speak piercingly through that fog and through that darkness so that, 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 your, that your people here would hear your voice today, Lord, that we would find that hope is found only in you, that truth is found only in you. Soften our hearts today that we might hear from your word, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to lay the framework this morning, I would like to examine a well-known story from John's Gospel, chapter 4. You may be familiar with the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, all his way back from Galilee, Jesus and his disciples took a shortcut through Samaria, which wasn't a common route because the Jews and Samaritans had a checkered history. Nevertheless, this was the route they took, and at a particularly hot part of the day, they happened upon a town called Sychar where the well was. Jesus was tired from the journey, and he goes and he sits by the well to get a drink while his disciples scurry off into town to get some food. While she's sitting there, a Samaritan woman approaches the well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. 
Now, the woman was surprised that a Jew, her perceived enemy, would even talk to her, let alone ask for a drink. And it leads to a discussion on something called living water that Jesus can offer her. Well, if you've read the story, you know it's pretty obvious this woman is broken and needs to be healed. She's anxious to experience this living water. But Jesus, the prophet who knows her heart, speaks deep into her soul, and this is what he says. He says, go call your husband and come here. Now, this question probably shocked her, uh, caused her some shame, and so she tries to skirt the issue by simply saying she has no husband. Have you ever gotten that hot feeling in your stomach when somebody brings up an issue you really don't want to talk about? Yeah, I I imagine that this woman felt that right here. But Jesus is looking to bring about transformation in her soul, and so in in his prophetic role, Jesus knows what's happening in this woman's life, and so he presses deeper. He says, he says this, he says, you're right in saying you have, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and, and one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is, is true. Now, <laughs> this is, to say the least, an awkward conversation for this woman to talk about. That hot feeling in her stomach was probably getting hotter as she's wondering, who is this guy? How does he know so much about my life? Who's, who's he been talking to? Well, Jesus knows what is happening in her life, and he wants her heart. In his prophetic role, Jesus exposes the sin that's in her heart. And Jesus does the same for us as well. That if our hearts are to be truly transformed in a way that leads to lasting change, change, Jesus needs to expose our idols at the deep heart level. That's the role of the prophet. And so the woman even recognizes this. This is what she says in verse 19. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, time and again, Jesus is recognized as prophet in the Gospels. And, And the truth is that we have some clues this woman is experiencing shame even before this. For example, it was common for women to go to the well in groups at this time, but this woman comes alone, indicating that she was a a type of social outcast. In other words, she doesn't want people to see her. And while Jesus perceives her story, commentator D.A. Carson notes, his remarks were not designed to be self-revealing. Rather, they are designed to help the woman come to terms with the nature of the gift that he's offering her, the living water they've just talked about. In other words, Jesus is revealing the truth about God and salvation to this woman because that is what prophets do. Now, attempting to change the uncomfortable subject of her romantic life, uh, the woman brings up a disputed issue of theology because that's what we do when things get awkward, right? We talk about disputed theological issues. They have a conversation about what it means to worship God in spirit and truth, and, and Jesus helps her to see that her, her, her whole idea of worship is about to change. And so at the end of the conversation, the woman says something really, really profound. This is what she says. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, it's an intriguing statement for her to say this because it wasn't until the 16th century that Samaritans started to regularly use the term Messiah. Samaritans preferred the term the Taheb, or the Restorer. They thought that when he came, he would explain everything to them. And it was a very Samaritan concept because the Jews did not think of Messiah primarily as teacher. 
The Samaritans viewed the Taheb as one who would reveal the truth in line with his role as, you may have guessed it, the ultimate prophet. And it's likely that John, who wrote the gospel, understands that Jesus is the revealer in ways that outstrip both Jewish and Samaritan expectations. Now, to properly grasp this concept, we need to understand our first point, the history of the prophet. If you open up a systematic theology book and examine the section on the work of Christ, you will often find a segment on the offices of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave instructions to the people of Israel to establish three offices as needed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. In the New Testament, we see these offices applied to Christ as a better version of each. In fact, even John Calvin observed that in order to fully understand the work of Christ, we have to see him in these three roles. For each establishes a different purpose and shows a different aspect of Christ. One isn't more important than the other. They, they work together. Now, at Christmas, we celebrate the miracle of the Incarnation. That God himself became flesh and walked among us. And as he walked among us, he had work to do. Theologian Millard Erickson distinguishes Jesus' work based on function. He says, Jesus Christ is revealer, reconciler, and ruler. As our prophet, Jesus reveals the truth about God to us. As our priest, he reconciles us to the Father. And moreover, as our king, he rules over this world as the sovereign. And so over the next three weeks, we'll explore each of these offices, but today I only have time to look at his revelatory role as the final prophet. Now you may remember, all the way back in Genesis 12, God spoke and issued a call to Abraham. And he said, you are going to be the father of the people of Israel. And so God told him that he would bless the nations through him and his family. And as the story unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture in Genesis and Exodus, we read that Abraham's descendants were taken into slavery in Egypt. And eventually God rescues them through the leadership of a man named Moses. And after they escape from the Egyptians and begin their 40-year trek to the promised land, God establishes his law with the Jewish people, part of which is describing the roles of the king, the priest, and the prophet. It's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17 and 18. While Israel wouldn't have a king to rule over them for many years, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 establishes laws for, a time, for when that time comes. The king, for example, had to come from the people of Israel. Couldn't be a foreigner. He should restrain his military might and trust God in battle. And he shouldn't become too wealthy. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 18, 1 to 8, there are laws established for the Levitical priests and how they should operate. But before launching into a discussion on the role of the prophet, Moses, who's the author of Deuteronomy, discusses inappropriate ways to contact the supernatural, things such as magical practices of the day. And it's in that context that the prophet is discussed. And so Moses writes this. He says, The nations will, you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, he says to the, the people of Israel, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Now do you see what Moses says at first? He tells the people of Israel that they're going to enter a land where people are practicing sorcery and divination. In, in other words, they're seeking answers apart from Yahweh God. 
They are pursuing lighthouses not established by him, and they're destined for shipwreck. But as for you, the Lord says to the people of Israel, you're not permitted to do this. Why? Well, those practices are an abomination in my sight. In fact, they're part of the reason judgment is coming to the people in the land of Canaan. But second, and don't, don't miss this, Moses says God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. And what must they do? He says they must listen to him. Now, Moses was considered the model for the prophet of God. He was called and raised up by God when he spoke to him in the burning bush. He was the one who spoke to God on Mount Sinai. He brought down the Ten Commandments. He was the one whose face changed because he caught a glimpse of the back of God in Exodus 33. He was the voice of God to the people of Israel. And now he's saying that another prophet will be raised up and they have to listen to him. Well, who is this that he's speaking of? Yahweh God says this in verse 18. He says, I will raise up again for them a prophet like you from their fellow Israelites, and I will put his wor- my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Did you catch that? Again, another prophet will come. That, and God says he will speak for me, and if anyone doesn't listen to him, he will be accountable to me. And now the Jewish people took the word of God seriously. Most of them memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew Deuteronomy back and forth, and and this word about a prophet like Moses would not have been forgotten. But no one came for years, for centuries. The people of Israel looked for, they, they, they longed for the prophetic Messiah to come. And horrible things happened to the people of Israel during that time. I mean, their kingdom uh, fell and cities were destroyed. They they were taken into captivity. They they returned and rebuilt Jerusalem, but then they were attacked again by people like Antiochus Epiphanes who who desecrated their temple. They, They fought and defeated him, and they still longed for the messianic prophet to show himself. And for 400 years, during the intertestamental period, no one spoke for the Lord. There were no prophets. And yet, in the midst of the darkness, they clung to the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, I suspect that during this very dark period, it was hard to believe they would see light again. In fact, maybe they stopped believing the prophet that Moses spoke of would come. It actually reminds me of an activity I did when I was a, I was a kid. Has anyone ever been to Liberty Science Center over there by the Statue of Liberty? Yes, yeah, some of you. Um, I would go there with my friends and their family as a young boy in elementary school. And one of my favorite things to do was something called the touch tunnel. Maybe you've done this before. It is an 80-foot long pitch black tunnel that you have to crawl through. The whole point of the tunnel is that you have to get through it using uh, other senses other than your eyes because you just, you can't see anything. And I have to tell you, as a 10-year-old boy, this, this was scary. (laughs) I wonder why my parents made me do this. Why did you send, I'm in this pitch black tunnel feeling around wondering if somebody's going to grab me and kidnap me or whatever it is, but I think I got through eventually, obviously. Um, But all you can see is pitch blackness. And you're wondering when the end is coming. Where is the light? And that's what I imagine the people of Israel were going through. 
They're in, they're in the midst of this, this sort of touch tunnel. But then, some shepherds saw some angels, and they followed a star. And in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of King David, they met a baby. And there was something different about this baby. And later, a man named John started to talk about preparing the way of the Lord. And a man named Jesus shows on the scene, and he, he claims to be the light of the world. And he speaks the very words of God to the Jewish people, but they reject him. That he's crucified, dead, and buried, but he rises again and appears to his followers, one of whom, a man named Peter, preaches a sermon a number of years after this to his fellow Jews. And with passion in his voice, he recalls Israel's history and begins tying it to Jesus the Christ. And he tells them that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled all the prophecies. And then he says this. He quotes a guy named Moses who said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Wow. I mean, you mean to tell me that Moses was talking about what he was talking about so many centuries ago? The man he was talking about was Jesus? Yeah. Because he's the prophet who's greater than Moses. And he's the one who did not just speak for God, but who was God. He was the perfect revelation of God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God, as Paul writes to the Colossians, who was raised up by God and who speaks for God. He is our perfect and final prophet. Amen. Moses spoke of another prophet in Deuteronomy who would speak for God, and all the signs point to Jesus Christ. As God himself, he is the greatest prophet who could ever be, and apart from him... We could not truly know God. And as our great prophet, who is better than Moses, that is our second point, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Now, if you go back to our story in John chapter 4, remember that woman just brought up the idea that Messiah would come and explain all things. Well, little did she know who she was speaking with. And since she brought up this whole topic of Messiah, Jesus decided to reveal himself. This is what he says in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. Now imagine being this woman. In this moment, it is revealed to her that the Messiah, the expected Taheb, the ultimate prophet, was the one who sat next to her at the well. He was the promised prophet who spoke deep into her heart, revealed the truth about God to her, and could offer her, truly offer her living water. That's a big wow. Now, in this moment, Jesus looks at this woman and essentially says, I am the great prophet you're looking for. I am the only one who can reveal the truth which will satisfy your weary soul. I am the light you are looking for in the darkness. Come to me so that I can guide you. Alistair Begg makes this profound comment. He says, Jesus, he is the prophet who comes not just to inform, but to transform. The teacher is the redeemer. In Jesus, the very prophetic word of God finds the ultimate expression, not simply as a truth to be believed, but as a person to be trusted. See, God gives us Jesus so that we can know him. Because just like the people of Israel, we too were walking through darkness until the light of Christ shone into our hearts. In fact, in both Ephesians 4 and Romans 1, Paul tells us that our foolish hearts were darkened, that our problem was interior darkness. 
And you may ask the question, why do we need a prophet? Well, we need a prophet to speak into our hearts and show us the way to the Father. You know, in our world, there are many religions, all claiming to have the truth. There's many lighthouses trying to guide our ships into their docks. Buddhism. Buddhism says there's a noble eightfold path that will bring us to enlightenment. Scientology. That says if you give enough money and you take enough courses, you can be a better person and make a difference in the world. Islam. Islam claims that Jesus was one of many prophets of God who all teach that we must worship Allah and obey his law. However, Muhammad is the great and final prophet in Islam. So Muslims claim that the true message of Jesus, the prophet of Allah, was lost and perverted by the Christian gospel. But if you read the Bible, you'll see that it claims the exact opposite. That Jesus is superior to all other gods and everyone will bow at his feet. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, do you see what the text is saying? It says God spoke through the prophets, like Moses at other times in history. But now, God doesn't need those prophets because he speaks to us directly through his son. You see, we don't need those other prophets because God himself, in the person of the Son, has revealed his truth to us. He's the heir of all things. Through him, God created the world. Did Muhammad do that? He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the false prophet, Muhammad. He's superior to all other prophets. In fact, author David Murray puts it this way. He says, every Old Testament prophet reminds us of our need for a prophetic mediator and anticipates God's provision of Jesus Christ, the prophet. In other words, the former prophets were pointing to Jesus. In fact, over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is called prophet, and he embraces that role. Alistair Begg says this, he says, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted, in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed, and in the Acts, Jesus is explained. Here's a couple examples. John chapter 6, we have the recorded miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And after that miracle, what do the people say? John six fourteen. when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. See, they recognize him from Moses' words. Luke chapter 7, there's a story about Jesus healing a widow's son. Jesus arrives on the scene just as they're carrying the dead man's body out of the house. And having compassion on the mother, Jesus heals the boy and brings him back to life. And what do the people say? Luke seven sixteen, Fear sees them all and they glorify God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the temple and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, a messianic prophecy. And after he reads the scroll, he sits down and says he has fulfilled the prophecy and everyone's amazed and they're marveling at him. And what does Jesus say? Luke 4, 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. See, Jesus demonstrates prophetic characteristics in his message and ministry. Jesus is recognized as prophet by the masses, his enemies, and his disciples. Dr. Daniel Carroll, my Old Testament professor of Kingdom of Israel and the Prophets, observed this. He said, Jesus 
was like other prophetic figures of the time who led popular movements. But at the same time, Jesus was the greatest prophet and at the same time was more than a prophet because of who he was and what he accomplished. You see, everyone observes the same thing. Jesus is the supreme prophet. He is the one who reveals the truth about God, and he is the one to whom we must run to discover meaning and purpose and a proper understanding of reality. He is the lighthouse that is built on the solid foundation and who guides us for our good. In fact, the writer of Hebrews continues. He says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by, his word, by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. In fact, that word for radiance has in mind that that idea of the hot brilliance of the sun. Has anyone ever sat on a beach during the hottest part of the day and been scorched by the sun? It's my pale-skinned brethren out there. You know that that is just a small glimmer of what it means to be in the presence of Jesus. That without the prophetic work of the sun, we would remain in the dark regarding the glory of God. That without the priestly work of the sun and making purification for our sins, we would remain unreconciled to God. As the Son, Jesus is the better revelation of God than that which the, comes from the prophets of old. In fact, Jesus reveals more of God than those prophets ever dreamt of doing. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is, the better, is better than Moses. Jesus is the true prophet. Muhammad is the false prophet. Jesus is the exact imprint of the true God, and he has the power to speak into hearts and transform lives. And that's where I'd like to finish this morning. Because many of us may be sitting here saying, why? Yeah, so what? I get it. Jesus is a great prophet. Okay, but what does that mean for me? Well, I think we need this prophet to orchestrate the transformation of our souls. Transformation of our souls. He wants our heart. And, And I wonder if you today have truly placed your trust in him. Because we began this message talking about a ship lost at sea looking for a lighthouse. And I wonder again if that's something many of us feel today. That it's Christmas and we're supposed to be happy, we're supposed to be holly jolly, but we feel thirsty because maybe, just maybe, we're sailing to the wrong lighthouse, we're drinking from the wrong well. Maybe we've put our trust in the wrong place, and like the woman at the well, we're looking for hope in all the wrong places. That is, until she meets the Taheb, the prophet who spoke into her heart in a transformative way. So where are you placing your trust this Christmas season? And as you ponder the miracle of the incarnation, recognize this, God sent a prophet to confront us with our need for one. That we need someone to speak truth into our lives and show us the faulty lighthouses we are trusting. The lighthouses that promise rescue but produce ruin. What we need is to hear from God, church. Now maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. 
My prayer for you is that Jesus, in his prophetic role, would speak directly to your hearts today. I pray that he would open the eyes of your heart and reveal the truth of who he is. Because I suspect there's some part of your life that is thirsty for living water. There's some part of your heart that is looking for that elusive gift that Christmas points to. May you hear from the great and ultimate prophet today who simply says this, I who speak to you am he. Now, if you are a Christian here today, if you've trusted the person of Jesus Christ as your Savior, may you allow him to speak into your heart as prophet as well. May he bring conviction of sin that needs to be repented of. May he bring healing where healing needs to happen. But more than that, I pray that we would recognize that Jesus' prophetic ministry is not done. He's given it to us. See, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that the love of Christ compels us to be ambassadors to this world. He calls us to be a waft of the supernatural to those around us. And I got to tell you, there is lots of people around us who need the love of Christ this Christmas season. God knows the needs of those around us, even if we don't. So maybe we can pause and ask him to reveal those needs to us. Maybe the person sitting next to you today needs some encouragement. Maybe the coworker who you can't stand needs something that you can provide. Go and tell the message of Christmas to desperate hearts. That is the prophetic ministry of Christ. In fact, Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, when the gospel is made known among the people of God, God walks with his people. It's the miracle of Christmas all over again. May we be the hands, the feet, and the voice of Jesus to a world that needs to hear that the prophecy has been fulfilled. How do we do that? Alistair Begg offers three words. He says, first, we need to be convictional. We need to be convinced followers of Jesus. is, Is it the conviction of our heart that people need to hear the gospel? That conviction will drive the way that we live in this world. Secondly, we need to be courageous. Is there a fire in our hearts that causes us to speak prophetically to a dying world? Acts 4.12 tells us that the name of Jesus is the only one that saves. Do you believe that? We need courageous people in this world. And then finally, we need to be compassionate. May we be winsome in our approach and understanding of those who are skeptical and searching because remember, we were all there once. Theologian Charles Hodge captures this beautifully. He says, we as fallen men and women... Ignorant, guilty, polluted, and helpless need a savior who is a prophet to instruct us, a priest to atone and to make intercession for us, and a king to rule over and protect us. And the salvation which we receive at his hands includes all that a prophet, a priest, and a king in the highest of those sense can do. Next slide, please. We are enlightened in the knowledge of the truth and we are reconciled unto God by the sacrificial death of his son and we are delivered from the power of Satan and introduced into the kingdom of God all of which supposes that our redeemer is at once a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the good news of Christmas is that this prophet, priest, and king was born in Bethlehem. That our need for him is great. We once were blind, but now we see. But there was a time when we didn't realize the history of the prophet. 
There was a time when we didn't recognize the supremacy of Christ, and our hearts were dead and not transformed, but now we're called to be part of the prophetic ministry of Christ. We're called to be like the woman at the well. Do you remember how she responded after she met Jesus? See, after Jesus revealed that he was the Taheb, the Messiah, his disciples came back. And as they reconnect with Jesus, the woman leaves abruptly. She leaves so abruptly and quickly that she forgets her her water jar there. I don't think that was an accident. Because she was so excited at what she had just experienced that she ran to town and she spoke to the people there. And what did she say? She said, come, see, a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Come see. Come see. Come and see a man who knew everything about me, even though I had told him nothing. Could he be the one who the prophets spoke about long ago? Could our era of darkness be over? Could the light finally be here? I'd invite the worship team to come forward for one more song. And as they do, church, I would remind us that the truth about Christmas is this. Darkness is fading. That God himself has come to earth. And when we speak about Christmas, we can sing the same words that the woman said, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel. The story of amazing love. The light of the world given for us, Noel. Because at Christmas, the great and final prophet of God was born. Amen? Let me pray for us.